Coming up on Money Beat, Wall Street is buzzing about the fund that lost $600 million just this past week. Uh, and they're also buzzing about the massive Kraft Heinz offer for Unilever, $143 billion. Is that enough? This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat. And look, you know, Wall Street loves stories about winners and losers on Wall Street. And Wall Street loves it, it's almost like it's almost like the sport of Wall Street. You love to take a strategy and, and, and dissect it and see where it did well, when it did bad. You know, you love these sort of spectacular stories, you know, these Hail Mary passes, these last second collapses. Uh, we have a really interesting one this week. You may have seen it already online and on page one of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Chris Dietrich and Gunjan Banerjee wrote the story. They are with us today to talk about the tale of uh, the $600 million loss this week, this week alone, right? This yes, fund? Yeah, through yesterday through, yeah, a week through yesterday. Wow, wow. All right. Uh, Chris, why don't you start us off? Tell us tell us what what this story is about here. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Quite a quite a yarn. I think a good place to start is to talk a little bit about this this mutual fund. It's called the Catalyst Hedge Futures Strategy. It's um it's a special type of mutual fund that sort of insiders refer to as an alternative, or it's it's basically a hedge fund like strategy. There are dozens of them out there. This one, in fact, was a hedge fund until a few years ago, and it converted to a mutual fund. But the way that it works is it uses options in a complex way where it, it buys and sells them in a con- in a configuration where Essentially, the ones that it buys, it buys calls. If the market goes up a little bit, it makes money on those. It sells others, collects a premium, and you know, essentially, if the market goes sideways or up a little bit, it gets to keep that. Um, so fast forward to last week, and options that these guys had bought expire today on Friday. The market is right at a level where it's right around uh, the, so- the so-called strike price where these are, right? So the the fund manager I spoke with yesterday is at a little bit of a crossroads because there's not much time before the options expire. So you can essentially either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money in a very short period of time, even if the market moves a little bit. So what happened last week is we had this, uh, you may remember, President Donald Trump said, you know, we're going to have this phenomenal tax plan. Markets had kind of been sideways for the last couple months, mm-hmm. kind of rocketed higher over five days. What that meant is these guys were sort of massively short the market suddenly, and given that the options expire in a very short period of time, they lost an incredible amount of money, $600 million in a week. In a week. That's not that's hard to do. Well, one of the things I was going to get talked to is they made a decision to you know hold on and not sell these options earlier. We were talking about this last night. It wasn't that crazy of a decision uh, you know, when they made that at the, you know, sort of end of last year. Right. And I think, it, you know, you talk about a strategy like this is it's pretty systematic. It's been it's been going for a long time. So every, you know, month or so, they'll they'll sort of reset these positions. They'll make a reasonable estimation for how far the market is going to go up. You have this range where you're, you know, evaluating the current situation. And before the election, they they put the ones that in particular got into trouble. They put that option position on and, you know, it's safe to say that they assumed that the market would not rise, you know, dramatically 10% in, in a few months. And that's exactly what happens. And I think that kind of speaks to 
this fund, I think, is emblematic of how many professional investors kind of can't believe that the market continues to right. go up. We have the you know the SIBO volatility index is 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 historically low, just refuses to go up, and um, so that's I think why we latched onto this. It's more you know it's sort of more of a fund. The fund is a big part of this, but it really speaks to I think what's going on in the environment. Uh, and then Gunja, I mean this. this Fund, obviously not a household name, but I mean, as this thing started to snowball on them, uh, it really caught traders' attention. Absolutely. I mean, um, a lot of people I spoke to mentioned that it started creating ripples in the options market and dislocations in the SIBO volatility index or the VIX, as well as the VIX futures and S&P 500 futures curves. And people were speculating that this fund kind of unraveling these bets was causing the market to move up more because the other side of the trade had to, you know, keep buying futures and kind of keep going long the market as they were unraveling their short positions. And what I think is interesting is that oftentimes funds like these actually use options to keep a lid on volatility because they want to kind of manage both the upside and the downside. But in in this situation, it, it really didn't work out for them that way. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think just to go to your point, the it's the, sort of the chapter two, which is that, you know, did this or did it not move the market is really how at least I, you know, became aware of it. And it seems like how anybody became aware of it because Gunjan, you know, how did you, maybe how did you um, even even catch on to this? Sure. I mean, it, it started, you know, I, I saw a lot of activity on Twitter yesterday, but even before that, I would reach out to to people in the market asking them about other things, but they just kept saying like, hey, did you hear about Catalyst? <laughs> uh, and kind of, you know, didn't even want to talk about what I was asking them about because everyone seemed to be, you know, chattering about this one fund um, that they thought was moving the market. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the market is, U.S. equities market is a gigantic market. And even, you know, the options market, which is smaller than, you know, but it's still a large liquid market. I mean, it, it's it's not impossible you know, and, and the history of the market certainly is that people do try to move the market. But, I mean, it's not easy to do. Well, one, one like, really clear example of a dislocation that people did notice and whether or not it's tied to this fund, I think people would disagree on. But, you know, the VIX moved up. And at, on the same day, on, on Wednesday, the S&P 500 index moved up as well. And usually, you know, equities and the so-called Wall Street fear gauge are inversely correlated, but to have them move up on the same day was definitely a red flag for some traders. Yeah. And it was up a lot. It was up, what, 10 percent, almost 10, 11 percent. Yeah. And that's like, that's a pretty big jump on a day that equities are up as well. Yeah, you know, one thing I'm interested in, in wondering is if these options were going to expire this week and they were on the hook for them, did they actually save themselves from worse losses by unloading earlier or Yes. So yes. they they yeah. they reached when I spoke with the fund manager and the CEO of the fund advisor, they have, you know, internal risk limits mm-hmm. that that they reached and they decided to, you know, they they closed them out. Yeah. Um and that's that's not totally unexpected a strategy like this, you know, that can happen. It's, you know, it's happened in ways that aren't of this magnitude before, but it, you know, this this was such a short period of time and such a dramatic move for the market that it was pretty incredible, but it, it's a judgment call, and the fund manager that I spoke with, you know, he said, you know, you have we're, the S and P is right at this level. It was flat for a lot. The market had been flat for weeks, and and that was the calls. You know, we, do you make a lot of money or do you lose a lot of money headed into this hmm. week? And you know, he he sort of let it ride. Yeah. Can you can you talk about actually this fund and 
it, its strategy a bit. And, you know, because it's not like, you know, you say mutual fund, people think they're 401k and the mutual fund that they have in there. But this isn't the mutual fund for your average mom and pop investor. Right. I mean, I think to get into this, you talk a little bit more about that, what I mentioned earlier, which is these, so, you know, these alternative funds are basically for people who are trying to, and it's in the name of this one, in fact, almost like hedge their portfolio. You might have some stocks, you might have some bonds, but maybe you put 5 or 6% in this, and it's supposed to be completely uncorrelated or mostly uncorrelated from the stock market. And, you know, it was, in, you know, by that definition, because the stock market has gone up over the past week and it <laughs> fell 15%, right? Um, but that's the idea is if you have this portion and maybe you'll lose money in your stock portfolio, but by owning this, you, you sort of get this this um, dependable return that you can rely on. Um, and in order to do that right, it uses options. And there's there's about 50 of these kind of mutual funds specifically. There are ETFs as well. And, of course, hedge funds do more complicated things as well. But um, there's a number of different things that they set up. But in this case, really, the, what, what got them on the hook is a very large call position that they had bought that's above the market. So they they collected income on that by selling them and and – as soon as the market rose above that level, then you're on the hook pretty pretty majorly, and then that amount that they were on the hook for accelerated very rapidly as the um, options expiration approached. Did they at any point during, you know, consider resetting their positions? Because you had the initial rally after the election. Then you had, you know, from December to mid-January or end of January, the market's essentially stalled. And now they've, you know, jumped again. So they kind of have a lot of diff- – they have things on for multiple months, right? So the, the February portion of this is what blew up, but they have things on for, for later in the year too. So it sounded like, you know, they considered redoing it last week or and you made a call to, to let it go because you, you assume that the market isn't just going to rocket higher again. And I think it goes back to this point that like many, you know, many hedge fund managers, many investors just sort of – this is a reality-defying kind of rally. It, it just it's, – it's very rare, and models that you've used in the past that have worked for a decade just didn't work this time. Yeah, $600 million is a lot to lose in, in a week, and it's a lot to lose in one place. I'm wondering, Gunja, when you were talking to people and they were kept bringing this up, were they bringing it up in a – kind of, oh, that's really interesting, or were they way, or were they bringing it up in a, oh, my God, are you seeing what's going on here, way? And, and the point I'm getting to is, is something like this, I mean, this market has been kind of, I don't know if I want to say jittery, and it's so hard to say that it's fragile when I mean, these things are at record levels. I think that we're in this, you know, weird limbo where there's just unprecedented levels of political uncertainty, but at the same mm-hmm. time, Traditional gauges of volatility, such as the VIX, are just at historic lows. And it's just it seems unflappable, like the VIX is just not rising, even though it seems like every single day and every week there's another like political hurdle thrown at us. Um, So I think a lot of my sources were talking about kind of the difference between fundamentals and technicals in the market. And it felt like to them people were assigning almost blame to this fund for or not blame, but, you know, they were. They were saying that this fund was the reason that the market was going up. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it was a trigger for the market um, to go up. And because there's just very little fundamental news to go off of. And people are just really reaching to assign reasons that the market should keep going up when often it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I mean, you know, think about a bank run in 1929. Think about long term capital management in 1998. Think about Bear Stearns in 2008. I mean, this is a much smaller 
fund, obviously, but these, no pun intended, catalysts, right, that kind of come out of nowhere and lose mm-hmm. a lot of money quickly. It's right. sort of the tide comes out and, you know, there's, what is that expression? They're not wearing a swim, what is it? Well, when the when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean. Isn't that a Buffett? Uh, I think it might be a, a Buffettism. Buffettism? Eric Holm? Yeah, who's been sitting here quietly waiting for the next segment. When, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. There it is. There you go. But just like Gungeon because said. Because I, I mean, know that that doesn't mean I swim naked. I just, <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel having that just rattling around in your head constantly? You can pull that out. Moment's um, notice. I, it's a sad life. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's that's just it. I mean, yeah. that that's the fear is that this unknown, you know, money losing mechanism is revealed suddenly and it, and it causes the whole yeah. thing to collapse. I or, or, I mean, the other thing, and you've written about this this week, Chris, is the fact that the superlatives for this market are starting to <laughs> get ridiculous. Um, and... I think that's what you're, you're seeing, like, whether the VIX has moved or, you know, it's still at historic lows. I do think there is a lot of sort of both fear and greed at the same time in this market, and both are sort of rising as people are like, you know, uh, the market keeps going up, but how can it keep going right. up? Right. And ironically, that's why people actually use options to hedge. <laughs> um, right. And a lot of those options uh, strategies in that Morningstar category that Chris mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of different flavors, but traditionally you use options to, to hedge mm-hmm. and to protect mm-hmm. yourself from these losses that people are scared of. No, but I mean, like, you just look at valuations. Valuations are now getting close to where they are during the tech bubble. Yeah. And that's going to make people a little bit nervous. And that's what makes our job so interesting. <laughs> uh, Gunjan, first appearance on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great job. Thank very you very good. much. It wasn't so hard, right? It was nope. easy. I had fun. Thanks, yeah. guys. All right. Uh, we will definitely have you on. Chris, hopefully we'll never have you on. Again, <laughs> good grief. All right. No, no. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Appreciate it. Uh, everyone, stay tuned. When we come back, gigantic, massive, possible merger in the food industry. We'll talk about it next. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to Money Beat, and we've shuffled the chairs a little bit. We've uh, You heard a little bit from Eric Holm before. He has now moved into a microphone-equipped seat. Here I am. That's a, a very technical term. Joining us on the phone from London is Heard on the Street writer Stephen Wilmont. Stephen, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Very exciting day here, so I don't mind being late. Yeah, of course, right. And the excitement is, and I'm sure you folks have heard already, uh, Kraft Heinz comes out on Friday and says, hey, Unilever, we kind of like you guys. We'll give you $143 billion for the company. I, yeah. I just I don't, I'm not sure that's quite how they phrased it. Well, I'm sure they – yeah. Uh, I know lawyers like to put things a little more legally, but that's essentially what they said. They said, hey, we think you're a great fit. We love you. We make food. We and all do things together. what did Unilever say you know? in response? said, uh, no thanks. 143 is not even remotely enough for us. 
And again, they put that a little more diplomatic. Actually, not really. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> not really at all. Uh, I, I was kind of a, you know, I mean, $143 billion is such a big number to me. And this would be one, just at that number alone, it would be the second largest cross-border deal ever. After Vodafone's late 90s right. deals, which, which uh, our former colleague Evan Newmark was uh, in charge of. He was in charge of actually enough. Right, exactly. $143 billion turns out to be just the starting point. Yeah. So let's break this thing down. Uh, first off, just two massive international conglomerates. What is the, the rationale for combining them? Well, the rationale for Kraft Heinz is is more obvious than the rationale for Unilever, which explains the response of the company. Um, the, so the rationale for Kraft Heinz is um, that it, you know, it, it basically 3G Capital is this, you know, Brazilian investment firm teamed up with Warren Buffett to buy Heinz in 2013. Then they they basically reversed into Kraft uh, two years later, 2015, and and it, you know, in both cases they've they've cut costs um, to boost cash flows and paid down debt, and so they've they've achieved this. Um, so they've they've created a lot of value for shareholders by by cutting costs and and 3G are famous famous for this lean operating model, this thing called zero based budgeting they swear by, um, where you basically um, have a zero budget at the start of each year, like you have to justify all of your costs afresh, um, and so um, you know basically they need a new deal. And yesterday they reported um, weak fourth quarter results, um, growth is. Well, I'm sorry, flag- which one? Kraft um, Heinz. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the questions I had is, how much of this is about the emerging markets? Because Unilever has you know, a lot more access, to, a lot more sales generated yeah, from the emerging markets. Over 60% of sales in emerging markets. So, I mean, a great template for this deal, in a way, was is Anheuser-Busch in Bev's exactly. um, That's takeover. Exactly. Yeah, takeover of SAB Miller, where you had a mature North American-dominated um, consumer goods business, you know, Budweiser um, looking to buy in growth, basically, and, and and this looks a similar kind of thing where you've got, um, uh, you know, Kraft Heinz, which is mainly, main, I think it's about three quarters in the US, um, and only has ten percent in emerging markets. You know, buying a company that Unilever, which has more like, um, uh, yeah, sixty to seventy percent in in emerging markets, uh, and I, and I guess you know there's a, there's a call on the emerging market cycle there. Um, uh, emerging markets hasn't been the best, the easiest place to be in the last right. three, three to five years because of um, lower growth and, and but mainly um, depreciating currencies. Um, but uh, but you know now, now maybe it will be it, things are getting better, and I guess that's that's partly the call that that Kraft Heinz are, are making. The problem is they're going to have to pay a lot more for it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, well the, yeah. that was the question. It was, I, I wanted to, in, to get into this yeah. is whenever you have a deal of this size, $143 billion, financing is a big part of it. Um, you know, how much of that is going to be an issue? Well, it, it looks very uh, – so if you look at, as uh, you know, we were this morning, Kraft Heinz's balance sheet – it's quite hard to get your head around how they could possibly be making this offer, <laughs> um, because um, you know th- they're, they're offering a little over fifty dollars, uh, depending on the value of um, Kraft Heinz shares, which jumped this morning. So anyway, there's a, there's a moving part, but they're right. you know, they're, thir- they're offering basically thirty dollars in cash, and then about twenty, depending on the share price, in in their their shares. Um, 
And so that $30, you know, and there are 3 billion Unilever shares, that's basically $90 billion they have to come up with in cash. Anyway, you, you, you do the sums and you eventually get to the fact that if they combine the two entities and paid for the cash, you know, paid off Unilever's shareholders in cash, um, you, you've got net debt well over seven times earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is the usual metric, you know, the, the, the key leverage metric, which 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 uh, 3G generally use in their transactions, by the way. so um, I, I think, though, we could look to the uh, merger of Heinz and Kraft as, as a template to sort of get around that problem, though. Well, it, well exactly, because, of, of course, Kraft Heinz has a very uh, cash-rich backer, Warren Buffett. Right, and the way, that, the way yeah. that they put those two together was that um, 3G and Berkshire owned all of Heinz. And then when they combined, they paid the special dividend. The structure actually, as we understand um, the Unilever, the, the proposal that Kraft Heinz made to Unilever is, is relatively similar to the way that Heinz got Kraft in that they paid a special dividend, uh, paid cash to the shareholders of the company they were acquiring. Um, but that money did not come out of the pocket of Heinz. It came out of the pockets of 3G and Berkshire Hathaway. Absolutely. And, and then they ended up owning more of the combined company, um, which so it, it was uh, it was using they they got more equity out of the deal. And there was um, no they, they did refinance some debt uh, as part of that. Um, but they did not have to issue any new debt to pay the cash portion of the the special dividend that went to Kraft shareholders. So I agree completely that if they were to try to do this with the you know going to the debt markets or relying heavily on the debt markets, it would be a very very heavy lift. Um, but but I could see. But yeah. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, has eighty five billion or so in cash sitting around on its balance sheet, and sixty five billion of that is burning a hole in Warren Buffett's pocket. He likes to keep twenty billion just sitting around in the desk drawers or something, but. But $65 billion of that is stuff that he's very eager to spend. And I could see him not only pitching in for his half, if um, for, for Berkshire's half, if they structure it the same way as they did the Kraft Heinz deal. But I could no, also I think, see him yeah. chipping in for, to, to help 3G fund their portion as well. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's a very plausible model. Um, I, I think the, the, the key difficulty is that um, Kraft Heinz, um, they could fund... Like it, it made a lot more sense because you had two mature U.S. food businesses, mm-hmm. um, and you could you could get a, a level of synergies out of that transaction that you're not going to be able to get out of taking over Unilever, which is in mainly different geographies, and you know, um, 60% of which, almost 60% of which, is um, not in food. So you know Unilever owns does own some food brands, but it also owns a lot of you know Dove soap and. Um, yeah. A lot of stuff which it sells more in it, which are faster growing, um, and it's going to be very hard for for Kraft Heinz to find any synergies there. Now they could sell that off, so you know, um, it, it, they could sort of do some sophisticated transaction whereby they 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 buy up the the, the food businesses right. of Unilever and then um, they somehow um, float or or sell off the 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 more valuable. Um, uh, kind of consumer products business, and, that, and that's been that was that's been floated a lot. That this was, you know, this bid was almost a way of sort of jumpstarting, trying to get a hold of the food product businesses, um, and that is the likely that could be the likely outcome. 
in fact, mm. is like a small, you know, instead of buying the whole thing, they end up getting a deal to buy, you know, just yeah. the food businesses. And and maybe, you know, the fact that it's become public is a way of kind of starting the 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 debate around this. That that I mean, I think that's a good sort of next question, too, is like the British takeover laws are, you know, once you go public with it, there's a there's a clock that starts ticking, and I think it's till mid-March, uh, mid-17th yeah. or something like that, that they have to get an agreed-to deal or they have to walk away for, what, six months? Yeah, something like that. Um, I mean, we've seen this before, you know, a long stalking process, so it wouldn't be unheard of for them to walk away and then come back and, and so forth. This could this could be going along for, for some time. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, the, the thing I think is interesting, and, and uh, I've actually been sitting here kind of trying to look up some of it, because I think just to, to get an idea of how, you know, how big these companies are. And one thing I think is interesting is that as big as these companies are combining, there probably isn't any kind of real antitrust issues because there are other big food companies. But when you look at it, there's I think there's about 10 food companies that basically dominate the global market for food. And, and these are two of them. And just go down the aisle at your local grocery store and you'll see it. But, I mean, Kraft Heinz, obviously Kraft and Heinz are two of their big brands. You know, but like uh, Oscar Mayer or Ida, Capri Sun, Kool-Aid, Planters. Um, what else do they have here? Grey Poupon, oddly enough, Classico, Velveeta. Well, I said Heinz. I said okay. Kraft and Heinz. So, I mean, everything that is Kraft, everything that is Heinz, mac and cheese, that stuff, you know. Unilever, Unilever's website, they list everything. They have like 235 brands. Marmite is on there. Marmite, the famous one. Yeah. The famous but one. We, we did got... a segment about Marmite, you know. We ate Marmite on the show. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was great. Uh, They've got Knorr, the kind of um, soup uh, yeah. kind of. Uh, I mean, they have global brands. Tea, yeah. Dove they, soap, Hellman's, Lipton. They have Hellman's Axe Manny's Body Spray. Paul, Hellman's you're wearing Manny's. Axe Body Spray right now. Oh, right? every day I do because, you know, I'm such a that player. Because I'm such a player. I read our story was uh, the Axe Body Spray. But, I, I mean, for you, grocer, yeah. But, but I, I can't think, believe it's not butter. But I think you speak to a good point. I mean, and this gets back to Unilever derives a lot of their sales Klondike from bars? emerging, mar- emerging bars. markets. While <laughs> Paul's just going to read, it's just like Mazzola. <laughs> this is like perhaps the most boring podcast. Uh, suddenly, no way, man. <laughs> I mean, these brands—they have you know, Alberta VO5, Vaseline, Viver, companies I never heard of, Zwan, products I never heard of because they're not sold here. It, uh, yeah, because the emerging market. I, I, I would point out markets, that, right. that, that uh, just to, I think maybe grocery we're going in the same place. Wonder, or maybe not. But on the emerging market angle. Berkshire Hathaway doesn't have much of a um, uh, uh, presence uh, overseas outside the U.S. except in these partnerships that it's doing with 3G. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's another way that Berkshire is finding growth: is it, that it's allowing 3G to do its dirty work for them. It's run out of you know large U.S. targets to some degree, and it's lo- run out of well-run companies that it wants to acquire for its own um, portfolio to, to live within the Berkshire Hathaway right. family. So it's it, this it, but the one thing that that where this is a classic Buffett move is that Warren Buffett loves he just loves brands. He yeah. loves household brands. He loves things that that you pick up out of habit or that that you know without having to see any advertising for. And so uh it, it's a perfect extension of the what he's been doing with 3G and in the same in 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 another way it's a, 
a classic Buffett um, acquisition. No, I, I, my my point was just like this is very similar to the beer deal again, mm-hmm. where you have you know. I think that combined company had 30% of the overall beer market in the world globally, but they weren't controlling one particular market or were too big in one particular market. So, you know, they passed uh, regulatory muster, and that seems to be the case. They had to make a lot of divest. They they had to sell a lot of stuff. And I I think, I um, I mean, that's the key difference between these two deals is that brewing you know, you combine two beer companies, you've got synergies in sourcing, synergies in production. Right. You combine companies that make a load of different, you know, foodstuffs. You've got you've got some synergies in production and sourcing, but I mean, particularly here when you've got household goods and soaps and detergents and stuff as well, um, you know, the, the synergies are just a lot more limited. And, and the question really is how much more does... Kraft Heinz and Buffett want to offer for a company when the synergies are more limited and whether will that be enough for uh, Unilever shareholders and I suspect not yeah. and the other thing uh, too is popsicle, I wonder ponds, Q-tips we can, we can literally stop, St. Ives I mean my, my point is just that you know you, again you're talking about two very large companies that will become even larger no I, mean, I think that's a legitimate point it's not going to get raised I think whether or not the deal even goes through but I mean you know you're talking about Companies that will have a big, big say over what people eat and what they put in their bodies and, 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 you know, a very big part of the global agriculture. So I think, you know, me personally, I think those are issues that should be raised. I think the, I think the, probably more, soup. the more press, pressing issue <laughs> will be with uh, Netherlands and also, um, you know, getting regulatory approval from the Netherlands and given 3G's cost cutting, which oftentimes means layoffs. And you know Unilever has a long history in the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, it, it, are they going to pass? Is it going to pass muster with them? That's an excellent point. Three G is known to be pretty darn ruthless when it comes to uh, cutting costs. And now Paul wants to finish this. Podcast yeah, I think we could after I, reading the entire. Well, before brand. we finish, I think I will read all two hundred and twenty brands that I have not yet written. No, I will not do that. I will Thank not do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. It's Tanya. We'll do that separately. It'll be a separate podcast. All right, uh, Stephen, thanks a lot, man. I know it's late. We really appreciate the time. No worries at all. All right, everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you for indulging us once again. and uh, we'll Indulging you. <laughs> indulging me. Yeah, well, thank you for indulging me. Uh, Stephen Grosser, thank you for indulging me, Eric Holm. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.